This is an ABC podcast. Can women be political leaders? Can women be military leaders? Can they be philosophers? Well, for most of us today, those questions are no-brainers. Of course they can. But if you were living in ancient Greece during the 4th century BCE, the time of Plato, then answering any of those questions with a yes would have made you something of a radical. That radicalism is on show in Plato's famous work, The Republic, where he sets out the ingredients for the ideal state, and he has women, as well as men, occupying the top of the political hierarchy. But even Plato can't quite commit to full gender equality. This is The Philosopher's Zone on RN. I'm David Rutledge. Welcome to the program. In the Republic, the upper echelon of the ideal state is comprised of what Plato calls guardians. The guardians are drawn from the elite of society and they play a complex role. They're warriors, they're political administrators and they're philosophers. The idea of women being admitted to the guardian class would have come as something of a shock to Athenian society at the time, where women were excluded from political and civic life. But that's not to say that women were relegated entirely to the private sphere, in spite of what you might have read or seen in ancient Greek drama. Well, my guest today is Emily Hume Cosey. She's reader in ancient history and philosophy at the University of Melbourne. There's been something of a sea change, I would say, in scholarship of ancient Greek, the ancient Greek household, I guess is the best way to put it. And in the course of thinking more deeply about the different roles of different members of the household, people have realized that some of the visions they had of women sort of being secluded on a second floor were more the product of fantasy or sort of a literary mirage than reality on the ground in ancient Greece. So, A literary was, mirage, you say? Yeah, literary mirage in the sense that works of literature, um, including especially for what we call forensic oratory, which are speeches given in the courtroom, would describe the household being divided this way, where women were sort of cloistered and never went out of their homes and this sort of thing. But some sources always pointed to a vision where you had women doing more things outside the home. And then what really has changed in recent scholarship is more attention being paid to sources which we as classicists usually class as non-literary sources. So those are sources like epigraphy, which are things written down on hard materials like rocks or bronze or lead. So ancient Greece was littered all over with rocks where people wrote down laws and things like that. And it was also littered with these lead tablets where people wrote curses about other people, for example. And we have a lot of evidence for things they were doing day to day on some of those sources. And from those sorts of sources, which really fall outside the literary canon, we've learned more and more that women were doing lots of things. In particular, because a lot of these sources tend to cross-cut class distinctions in a different way than literary sources, which are usually all written by really one class, which is going to be mostly Athenian for the first part, and mostly male, almost exclusively male, really, and almost exclusively elite, because, of course, literacy rates were different in antiquity than they are today as well. And so from this elite male literary cohort, you have a, a sort of a fantasy of, of women stuck inside the home. Is that what's going on there? 
it seems to be more of sort of a perspective that they have that this is what's going on, or more rather, you might say that they wish what should be going was what on, was yeah. going on or what should be going on, when the reality was that especially once you look outside of women of those men's social class, there are women doing all sorts of jobs in antiquity. So they're participating in the marketplace, for instance, selling baked goods they've made. They're involved with the production and maintenance of textiles. They're working as midwives and as doctors in some cases. And we have all sorts of fun little cases of women that are painters and um, bronze workers working in just about every little field, especially in family workshops and things like that. So we have quite a bit of evidence of women working outside the home, which, of course, would violate this idea that women are cloistered in a way and are never in the marketplace or never in a workshop, anything like that. What about civic functions, political roles for women? Were, were there any of those? No. The, that's a case where it's very clear that there's a distinction. So women wouldn't serve on juries, for example. They wouldn't vote in the assembly. Any of those the roles, like political offices, women were not allowed to participate in. And there's laws that also um, sort of bridge in between, I guess you would say, strictly political and into the economic sphere, um, prohibiting things like um, ownership of property. So there's certainly lots of restrictions on women's activity in ancient Greece. It just isn't that they are completely cloistered away and never working. Mm. It is interesting what they are doing too, isn't it? I mean, you've got women being, as you say, wool workers, midwives, uh, innkeepers, artisans of various kinds. And, and there, you know, the idea of professional specialization is really important to this conversation, isn't it? Absolutely. So that's one of the things that is most important as we transition to thinking about Plato and even just thinking in the ancient world, what kind of jobs people had. Usually the job you have is going to be something that you were taught by your father or mother. So often you have these lineages of sculptor families or painter families or weaver families, that sort of thing. And so some of the specializations that you see women having, especially when they are in things like bronze working or painting, is going to be because their father was involved in one of those trades. And all of these trades involve lots and lots of experience, lots and lots of practice over years, decades, really. And so a lot of the evidence that we also have about women pursuing these trades is even going to be from things like contracts that we see in um, them being trained in one of these specialized roles. So we have examples from Hellenistic Egypt, which is a later time period, but Egypt being very dry, somewhere where we can expect things to get preserved very well. We have examples from there of contracts for women who are weavers and what kind of terms there were for their apprenticeship and things along those lines. Well, let's turn to Plato's Republic then and the role or the roles for women that Plato had in mind in the Republic. And as a way of getting into it, I'd like to talk about the conception of human identity that Plato had, because he, he had an idea there that was quite revolutionary for his time in terms of the relationship between the soul and the body. Can you speak about that? Sure. Yeah, I can say a little bit about that. So Plato strongly identifies individuals with their soul or what we might even think of as your mind. This is the origin of, you know, our word psychology is from the Greek word for soul. And if you're thinking of psychology as study of the mind, then it's, you know, that sense of, of soul. And He's really thinking of that as sort of the motive center of people, and it's the center of reason where you make decisions that make you who you are. And then on top of that, Plato seems to believe in um, the persistence of the soul through the afterlife, and so that's going to be a time period when, of course, your body is going to go away and decompose, but in some sense, you are still going to be you as long as that soul is intact. 
So the soul is definitive of, of the person more than or rather than the body. Right. I think it's, in almost a way, I think he thinks that this is, it's not quite common sense, but he's thinking that it's the sort of thing that you you would most identify with you insofar as it's the thing that you fully control. And how was that idea received in the Athens of, of Plato's time? Yeah, this sort of question is an interesting one because it's not that Plato doesn't think of the physical body as important too. And little anecdote I always like to tell is Plato's name means broad, you know, uh, Platon. And that's a nickname. That's not like a name that you are born with. Uh, so the idea seems to be, this is what some ancient sources tell us, is that he was really broad-shouldered. So this was actually an extremely physically fit man <laughs> that became a philosopher. So it's not that he doesn't see sort of the role of the physical body. And in addition to that, he, in the Republic, has this idea that physical training actually even impacts how you are able to use your mind, too. So he thinks if your physical body is so weak or something that it's, like, distracting you from being able to study seriously, that's a problem in of itself. But he is going against a culture, I suppose you could think of, that's really focused on external appearances and thinking really deeply about humans as the part that's not external but is rather internal and is the thing that persists throughout your entire life, whereas, of course, the physical body breaks down as you get older, mm. let alone something that persists in the afterlife. And, and is it also a culture for which biological sex, for, for which gender is definitive of a whole lot of things, which you know Plato's idea would sort of undermine in a sense? Yeah, that's definitely right. So he doesn't seem to think that the soul is has a sex in uh, his works. So in particular, he describes in The Republic that a woman could become a man in a second life or vice versa. He gives a couple of examples of that. But whichever body you get effectively born into in his society is going to have these huge consequences for what your opportunities in life look like. Um, the sorts of Civic roles that we talked about earlier would be a great example of this, where if you were born as a woman in ancient Athens, you are never going to be part of the assembly or hold the office of general or any of those sorts of roles that are really prized among men and prestigious within your society. Just by dint of being a woman, you're never going to have those opportunities in your life. So by portraying a ideal society in the Republic, wherein you are going to have the same opportunities for men and women— that's really a very different vision of what an ideal or any society should look like. And so what do we see women doing in Plato's Republic, in this ideal society? What, what role for women does Plato envisage? This is a good juncture to um, talk a little bit about the basic facts of the Republic and how that society is organized. So in the Republic, Plato is presenting his vision of what a society should look like. And it's based, in the first instance, upon this idea of specialization that we talked a little bit about before. So the idea is that the best society will have people specializing in what they're good at. He then gets to the point of thinking about who's going to be in charge of this society, and he says this is going to be a society where the rulers are characterized by having the following personality type. They're very friendly to those people they know, so their fellow countrymen, and they're very fearsome to their enemies. So any invading armies or something like that, they'll be able to stave off. And he hesitates over this point, thinking, are there really people that have that combination of qualities where they're friendly and hostile in a certain sense? And he decides that they do exist via the model of guard dogs, 
So he has this idea that you have guard dogs in your houses, and these guard dogs are very friendly to their family, basically, the people they know, and they're, of course, very fearsome to anyone that would try to rob the house. So he thinks that the leaders of his city, he calls guardians, sort of a wordplay, guard dog to guardian, where you are going to be characterized by having that kind of personality type. So he set up a society along those lines. At a later juncture, he comes to the idea of how will we divide then those guardian roles in particular, but also just all the roles in society between men and women. And he thinks, well, we had this guard dog idea for the guardians, that that was the right personality type. And even though in our society, ancient Athens, the one he's imagining that all of his interlocutors are familiar with, we don't allow these political roles for women. We don't allow them positions of leadership. When you look at these guard dogs, maybe even the guard dogs we have in ancient Athens, we don't take the guard dogs and then separate them and say, like, male guard dogs, you be guard dogs, and female guard dogs, you sit around the doghouse, like, cleaning the dishes. That's not the vision any of us are supposed to have of how guard dog labor gets divided. So he thinks that should follow for people as well. There's a sort of tension, though, isn't there, in, in Plato's writing on this? Because on, on one hand, as you say, he's working on the assumption that for this particular role in the Republic, the guardian class, that women have the same natural capacities as men. But then elsewhere, he asserts that women are physically weaker than men, which you would think would be an important difference for a guardian class, for people who are supposed to sort of wield weapons and exhibit physical strength. There's also a certain extension of this assertion where he claims that women in general are worse at their jobs than men. So what's what's going on there? Is that a, is that a, a right. sort of a contradiction that we need to untangle? <laughs> My own view on this is that what he has done is made a mistake here in observing things in his own society where women do have some of these specialized jobs but are not given as much opportunity to specialize as men are. And so he could even be thinking they have less accomplishments as sculptors, say, or as doctors, and he doesn't take into account that that's partly because of a difference in opportunity afforded these women in his society. And he's thinking that's actually like a fault of them as women rather than a fault of a society that's not providing them the equal training and practice opportunities as they are to men. It seems pretty probable to me that you have, in the first instance, fewer opportunities, of course, afforded women early in their life in ancient Athens. And then throughout their lives, women are having to take on a lot of different roles that in the sort of ideal society logic that Plato has, would all be separated out as, as different jobs between taking care of houses, raising children, making food, making clothing, all that sort of stuff. But of course, the social reality in ancient Athens is that women are doing a lot of these things. And so then when you, I mean, if you did some kind of head-to-head -head of a female sculptor against a male sculptor, you might really see like, well, the male sculptors made like a lot more statues <laughs> over the course of his career. And then my thought is something along the lines of, you might think that and then think, Perhaps the other jobs that, that woman has had to take on in her life would explain some of that difference in even something as straightforward as, you know, output of numbers of statues or something like that. So there's the there's the professional specialization versus multitasking tension, if you like. What about the physical strength one, the one where Plato's saying, well, women can be guardians on one hand, but on the other hand, they're physically weaker than men, and that matters? I actually think the physical difference in strength that Plato is talking about between men and women is probably a secondary concern. When he goes through what it takes to really qualify you to be a leader in the ideal society that he is setting up, physical characteristics are never pointed out as one of the central ones. So in a, particularly in this argument, he gives a list of three things that 
you need to be really well qualified to be one of these leaders. And two of them are definitely just intellectual characteristics. The last one is physical, but it's phrased as that you need to have a body that doesn't get in the way of you intellectually accomplishing a lot, which again, sounds like what's primarily of importance is cognitive abilities. When we think about that broader background where these people are supposed to be leaders in war, of course, it makes sense to think that physical abilities are going to matter to some degree. You might think that they are going to be generals, they're going to be people making strategic plans. Maybe it's less important for them to be physically strong than for soldiers on the front line to be physically strong. At any rate, it seems like that physical characteristic thing, although not irrelevant, is not the primary thing he's most concerned about for selecting leaders in his society. For selecting leaders in his society, he really cares about really intellectual ability and then this personality characteristic that you are friendly towards the people in your country and fearsome to people who might be invading your country or something like that. And he thinks that that's sort of a delicate balance of personality that you need to have. And maybe the idea is that it's actually harder to find someone that's really smart and has that good personality type than it is to find someone that's just really buff and strong. (laughs) On RN, you're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and my guest this week is Emily Hume-Cosey from the University of Melbourne. We're talking about the role of women in Plato's Republic and in other places where philosophy is given the respect it deserves. A lot of the discussion around the role of women in the Republic explores the issue of whether or not biological sex differences make you better or worse at your job. But what about the question of whether or not biological sex differences make you just different at your job? It's an interesting question to bring to Plato, but also to the issue of women in philosophy today. One thing that students often point out to me in this text, and it is true, is that Plato, so, you know, he gives rein to this idea that, uh, or he gives some credibility to the idea that women are going to be worse at their jobs than men. And he never gives any credit to the idea that, like, maybe women are better at different parts of the job or something like that. A student of mine pointed out once we were talking about the metaphor with the dogs, and he said, you know, there's actually some reasons why people prefer, like, female guard dogs. And you never see that sort of idea emerge in this text, that there would be, like, some other way where women made up for their putative shortcomings in other domains. In terms of Philosophy as practiced today, of course, there are people that think that women think different ways, or it could be that women, you know, pay attention to different sets of facts, their life experiences impact what they think are philosophically important issues in different ways. You can imagine, you know, certain books, it seems to me not uh, unlikely that uh, a woman would write this book or not that book. I mean, the example I think of right away is Kate Mann's book, Down Girl. That Mm. feels like the sort of book where it's like it makes sense that a woman wrote that book. Um, but of course, that's not, you know, some sort of necessary condition about, it's not some necessary truth about the world. Um, that's just something that you see tendencies with. So one thing connected with what is being laid out in this dialogue that I think is most relevant to this sort of question is that you do see in this dialogue the idea that philosophy is not just something where some spiritual genius or some inspired figure 
comes up with a philosophy and they sort of like come down from the mountain and tell the world about it. But rather, it seems very technical. It seems like the sort of thing that you do as you progress through an educational regime that has sort of a straightforward trajectory and has an examination regime, which then determines whether you've made it as a philosopher or not. And for at least some women in recent and continuing history, one thing that is very attractive, I think, in certain subfields of philosophy is that it feels like there's, they're either really technical or they have some seemingly very objective standards or something like that, where women might feel more comfortable in terms of slotting themselves in and saying, like, I can accomplish things in this field that will be recognized as clearly well-done work, versus some women will feel that in philosophy where people are being more praised for being geniuses, where they're being more praised for having deep insights that couldn't be expected, that women are never really going to win at that game because we have a society which still, on some level, thinks of philosophy on a model of, you know, these male geniuses that come up with their ideas in terms of, like, great breakthroughs rather than as that progress of hard work that just leads step by step to this more, um, in a way, more quotidian, but in another way, and in another way, more technical idea of philosophy is just sort of that more straightforward progression. So the vision you get of philosophy in this text is that philosophy is not the product of an inspired genius. It's the product of basically hard work. And for some women, that seems more like a game they can win they can definitely put in the hours, they can definitely put in the hard work, they can definitely get the technical chops versus trying to participate in a narrative of a genius. They think they might never be identified by society or by the philosophical community more widely as a genius on the model of a Wittgenstein or a Russell or something like that. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I wonder just personally, you know, has that figured in your own professional choices today, your own decisions about what philosophy to do and how to do it as a woman in academic philosophy? I think I probably, like a fair number of women, would feel pigeonholed somehow if I just worked on feminist philosophy. I think that that's probably a pretty common reaction that women have of that if you do that sort of subject, or especially if you exclusively do that subject, people will read it as if you have like a personal vested interest in it or something like that, rather than it just being an equally legitimate field like all of the other ones. And so I didn't come, for example, to this subject, I think because of that perception, which I don't think is totally licensed anyway, but because of that perception, I didn't even come to this topic thinking, oh, I'm a woman, so this text speaks to me personally. But sort of in a backdoor through a, a different interest in the economic uh, regime, really, that Plato is setting up, and realizing that this text had a lot of enlightening material on how that economic regime would work, and especially the role of nature in assigning different jobs to people. On the other hand, I think that it is true that I probably fall into the people that think that a good model for doing good work in philosophy is more like this technical model. And probably I think that looking at this text of Plato's feeds into that because it seems to me like the idea he's putting forward in this text to me matches some instincts that I have about what good work looks like in philosophy. Right. But what about the argument, though, that everything we do is embodied um, and that that means something? You know, there's been a good deal of energy yeah. spent in feminist philosophy arguing that philosophy should not be thought of as a, a sort of a cerebral, technical, abstract sort of pursuit, but there's something that proceeds from an embodied perspective. And so gender really counts for something. Um, and, and again, you know, from, from your own perspective, where's that insight? How does that insight function? 
For me, it seems like the experiences you have can't help but impact the sorts of philosophical questions that you think are interesting. And for me, the way that Plato is looking at philosophy in this text, where it's, again, not this idea of sort of like some external insight, but goes via this process of lengthy experience, I think feels somehow right because of maybe just that aspect. Do you think that there is a perception in academic philosophy today? Because, I mean, there was there was certainly a time, and not all that long ago, when it was the case that women were just held to be uh, inferior philosophers. And whereas I, I think there'd be few men in the, in, in the game today who would openly espouse that view, there are still traces of it, or the, there are people who, who will say that there are still traces of it, still very sort of strong traces of, of that view um, at work in professional academic philosophy. What do you think about that? Sometimes I feel like people also miss out on how clear the discrimination against women and other groups was historically. So in the case of academic philosophy, both when men would openly espouse that view, it wasn't just that they like said that and that all the women fled because they were like, I'm being discriminated against via the obvious bias that this someone is stating to my face. It also was that they would, you know, limit the number of training spots and PhD programs or that they would have jobs where you couldn't be a woman and have that job. So actually the job that I have here was one where you couldn't be a woman or in fact a married man. It was specifically for bachelors. Uh in order to have that role. And so you saw, of course, a massive throttling of the number of women that were in philosophy historically. And then somehow that was, again, just like not taken into account. And then men would say things like women can't be philosophers because where are they without taking into account the fact that they had, you know, prohibited them from being trained or employed in that field. So nowadays, of course, like you say, um, there's been a lot of change on that. Another interesting convergence in a certain way with this text is that you see this conversation between all men in this text, and there's no women in the text, and you still get this feeling today sometimes about the things that men will say behind women's backs, and I think a lot of women still have that sense that sometimes things are said in conversations which we're not a party to that do imply that women are less skilled in philosophy or undeserving of a seat at the table, so to speak. What you do have a lot of, and I've certainly experienced a lot of, is where you're the only woman in the room in philosophy. Um, this is less true probably every five years, but it still will happen that sometimes you are the only woman in a conference presentation or something like that. And at the earlier part of my career, I used to find this incredibly intimidating and to th always think, you know, if I say something not very well put or stupid, that then it will be like not just me being judged, but like all women are going to be judged as, as inferior philosophers because of some silly comment you made or something like that. Later in my career, I've actually found a silver lining to this, which is that when you do say something, people remember it because it somehow gets tagged in their mind as like all women <laughs> saying this or something like that. Like you somehow outweigh <laughs> multiple comments, which as I've become more confident in my participation in these discussions, that's actually a great thing that you get to feel like you get to have a stronger voice because somehow it becomes more memorable for people. So in my experience and now, you know, I've now found some silver linings and I think that you more and more see fewer and fewer times <laughs> where you are the only woman in the room. Emily Hume Cozy. She's reader in ancient history and philosophy at the University of Melbourne, and you've been listening to The Philosopher's Zone on RN.
Thanks so much for your company. And if you're hearing this program on air and would like to listen again, you can find streaming and download links on the Philosopher's Zone website. You can find us by the ABC Listen app or the RN website. Just look for us there on the program menu. And of course, a subscription to our podcast means you never have to go looking for us again. I'm David Rutledge. Tweet me at David P Zone, and I look forward to your company next week. Bye for now.